Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be uh, following immediately after the parable that Jesus told last week, uh, looking at the parable of the soils. Today we're going to be looking at the parable of the wheat and the tares. And so last week we saw Jesus anticipating questions that the disciples were very likely asking following some of the happenings in chapter 12, where they were probably thinking, hey, Jesus, if you're God, why doesn't everybody follow you? What Jesus replied with is the problem was with the human heart, right? The soil in which the seed of the gospel falls on, and he invites everyone who is eager to know him to ask and seek and knock, and he would share. Well, this week, uh, we see Jesus, I believe, anticipating another question that's following immediately after chapter 12, and it's that having to do with this idea of the kingdom. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you go back to the very beginning of Jesus's ministry in the book of Matthew, so he gets baptized, he goes into the wilderness, he comes back out, and he begins to minister. And as he does, he makes these comments. He says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, which means turn from whatever it is you're following to me, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus seems to think that that he is, he embodies the kingdom of heaven or God's kingdom come. So uh, Matthew 12, he repeats something similar to that when uh, he shows and demonstrates his kingly power, right, over demons. When he casts them out and the Pharisees say, hey, uh, he's not the Savior, he's actually Satan. And he comes back and he says, you know, if I'm able to do this, if it's actually by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus is saying, I am the kingdom and I have come. So let's just talk about for a second what on earth we mean by kingdom, because that's not something that we typically think about today. We don't have a king. We have, you know, Senate and House and Senate and President and Supreme Court, right? All the different branches. And so a king and a kingdom doesn't necessarily match up with our common understanding. We don't use this language every day. Now, here's a challenge with talking about the kingdom, is it's something by nature that's really challenging to define. In fact, there are books on what the kingdom of God is about this thick uh, that you could read. But I'm going to oversimplify and just say this. Here's what the kingdom means. It's the king's power over the king's people in the king's place, and it displays the king's character. It's the king's power over the king's people in the king's place, and it displays his character. Now, in part, Jesus is saying, I am the king, I am the powerful. And that's what the miracles demonstrate, right, as we read through the book of Matthew. This is what Matthew is contending through all 28 chapters of his book. But a part of what uh, being a part of the kingdom or the kingdom coming means is it's displaying God's character. God's character of mercy and justice and joy and patience and flourishing. And the list could go on and on. So if that's true, if Jesus is the kingdom having come, if, if what should be happening is the characteristics or the qualities of God being demonstrated as Jesus goes, a question will naturally arise as the disciples see people like the Pharisees saying, no, you're Satan. As they go, hey, you cast out the demon here, but there's still demon-possessed people over here. They're likely wrestling with this question of, okay, if the kingdom of God is here, how can there still be so much evil? If the kingdom of God has really come, how can there be so much evil all around us? Have you wondered that? Jesus, if the kingdom has come, why are there wars? 
Why are there rulers of nations who take humanitarian aid and profit off of it and use it as a power tool? Why is there oppression? The question gets really tricky once you enter into the doors of the church, right? In the last couple of weeks, as you saw uh, possibly this, this giant in the Christian faith after he's passed away, now being implicated in the abuse of many women. Many of you have asked these sorts of questions of me in the last couple of months. Anthony, if the kingdom is real, how can abuse like this happen? How can the church over the course of time defend slavery and racism? How can people wearing Jesus t-shirts mob the Capitol on January 6th? How can Christians take part in a cancel culture? How can Christians support the death of the unborn? How come my parents divorced and they're Christians, they're leaders? Anthony, if the kingdom of God is real and it came in Jesus, how can these things exist, especially in the church? This isn't something that I wrestled with in abstract this week. Last night I was walking the dog. You can hear it right now. I'm not even sure how much of this to share, but I will just say this. This question really overwhelmed me. I'm walking the dog through Ardsley and I got cry face going on. It just kind of came upon me. I'm like, like, what's going on? I'm trying to hide my face from all my contractor friends who, who live in the neighborhood. But, but what came over me were some of the realities from my childhood. When I saw my dad uh, struggle with uh, or, or wrestle through beating the addiction of, of smoking, right? And he quit cold turkey when I crawled up on his chest one night and I said, I don't want you to die. And two days later, he's done. And about a week later, he goes to 7-Eleven and he just sneaks a puff in a weak moment. And somebody from our church saw him and reported it to an elder. And the elder called him in the office and said, Hey, somebody who I can't tell you saw you smoke outside of 7-Eleven. You can no longer serve as an usher in our church and in no other visible role. A couple weeks later, the pastor confronted a woman and said, You're an adulteress, get out. And a week later, one of his elders confronted him and said, Hey, I know you're committing adultery with my wife. My family left the church. My dad didn't go back to church for 15 years. The church has hurt many people. I've watched it ravage my family. A couple of weeks ago, I'm on the phone with a friend I've known for many years whose family got sent home from the missions field because they found out that abuse was happening at the hands of his missionary father. And when he got back to U.S. soil, The agency and the church covered it up, and eventually he had to be the testimony that convicted his father. How can that happen? The kingdom's come. Well, let's read this text this morning, and and what I want to offer to you is this reality that this isn't the whole story, right? It would be too simplistic to say, okay, here's your answer, and let's go and move on. There's the whole council of Scripture that we need to wrestle with, but in part... This is what we see Jesus using as an illustration to explain to his disciples what's going on. This is a lot of text, and so just sit back, read, listen. But here's the parable that Jesus tells, beginning in chapter 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. 
And so the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds from uh, first and bind them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat into my barn. And then Jesus explains this parable. Right? I love it when Jesus does this. He does the explanation for and the research for us pastors. But he says this, he says, Then he left the crowds, and he went in to the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the son, are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of the kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them in the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let them hear. Pray with me as we get going. Father, this is a challenging question. And I would hold before us that your answer is equally as challenging. Father, I pray that our hearts will not stand in judgment over you this morning, but that you will cause our knees to bow under your eye, under your grace, under your mercy, under your justice. May we humble ourselves. May we find hope in this passage. Holy Spirit, would you speak in and through me And would you open our hearts? I am just increasingly convinced, unless your Holy Spirit brings these things to life in our hearts, Father, they would fall on deaf ears. So give us the ears to hear, I pray in your name. Amen. All right, so I put this in chart form for us. So Jesus basically explained the parable in this way. And and I'm just going to quickly walk through this. It's plain from the text, but for the visual learners, this may be helpful for you. In this story, Jesus says, I am the sower. Sower, remember, is the person who throws the seed out. The good seed are the sons, and I would say sons and daughters of the kingdom. And so, uh, just so you know, really literally within a, a matter of verses, Jesus changes the illustration, right? The seed last time, last week's parable was the gospel going forth and taking root in the heart, in the heart of men and women, right? In this one, he changes it a bit and he says, okay, the seeds now are actually the good soil that the seed fell on. And these are the sons and daughters of the kingdom who have cried out to me in faith in which I am bearing fruit through. The field, he says, is the world. The enemy is the devil. The weeds are the sons and daughters of the evil one, the ones who in Ephesians 2, it says, by nature, we all are children of wrath, and for those who don't follow Christ, these are the sons and daughters of the evil one. Now, there's kind of a line there that separates the two parts of the story at that point, verses 38 and 39. It changes gears to say the harvest is the end of the age, so it's something that's to come, versus what happened before is what is present. The reapers are the angels, the fire is eternal judgment, and the barn of the Master is the kingdom of the Heavenly Father. And so that, in essence, is the parable explained. But but let me just give you the the broad brushstroke of exactly what Jesus is saying. As they're saying, Jesus, if the kingdom has come, why can good and bad exist in the way that we see it? And, And Jesus basically says two things, and this is our simple outline for today. 
is he's telling his disciples there is a dissonance that won't last. There's a dissonance that will not last. So first let's talk about this dissonance. And oftentimes what you'll hear, at least in theological circles, is as Jesus is talking about the kingdom having come, we talk about it in terms of already and not yet. There's the already and not yet of the kingdom of God. So there are elements of the kingdom that have already come. But its fullness has still not completely come, where Jesus will one day come and make all things new. That's the not yet aspect. So here's some of the already. Part of the already is there are sons and daughters of the kingdom that the Holy Spirit is already at work at, and the fruit is, is, is already coming out. We're, we're salt and light. We're sharing the good news of this King and Messiah who has come. In a way, the sons and daughters of the king are the ones we're kind of like little snow globes, right? We're walking around in a world that is opposed to this good king, but but we're able to bear that fruit to demonstrate his love and his goodness and his justice and his mercy in a world that's opposed to him. It's a picture of what the church is, right? A church, uh, when it's uh, truly following after Christ, in, in a way, act as little embassies embassies, right? We're, we're those who are ambassadors to uh, and of this good king in the kingdom. But there's a delay. There's a delay. And again, one of the theological words is the parousia. The parousia. There's a delay in the second coming or the full arrival of this kingdom. And so in this tension, in this area of dissonance where two sounds, right, shouldn't go together, there is still in verses 25 and 39 an enemy. An enemy who comes into the field of the world and wants to continually sow evil. And he says this enemy is Satan. He's constantly trying to spoil the work of Christ by ruining the purity of the church and and those who claim to follow him. And friends, this idea of there is an enemy who is constantly on the prowl, who wants to destroy your and my faith, who wants to distract us from Jesus Christ himself, is something we get further and further away from. But Peter says, be, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your enemy, the devil, is a prowling lion behind the next bush wanting to devour you. We have an enemy. Do you believe that? Yeah, I'm afraid that we so often are kind of like uh, folks who put on our bathing suits looking for a beach weekend and we go to the beaches of Normandy on D-Day thinking we're going to get a good tan, Right? But the enemy is taking aim at us constantly. We're just kind of going about our daily business. In a way, this is meant to sober us and say there is an enemy. He also says that there is a dynamic of of good and evil growing together. And the picture he uses of that is that of wheat and tares. So a tare is a weed. Uh, Darnel is, the uh, I think, the technical plant name for what he's talking about. And, and essentially, what happens is, is this wheat and this darnel will grow together. And in the early phases of this plant's life, they look identical. You can't tell the difference between the two. And it's not until harvest time that you can actually tell the difference. And, and here's a picture of, of kind of the, what I've found to be the most common distinction between the two plants. The wheat uh, are the ones with the good fruit, the good wheat berries that are, are bent over there. And the tares are more those straight, stick-looking things, right? That top uh, part is really something that needs to be thrown away in trash. But there is no way of really being able to tell the difference until they've reached this stage. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, both of these will grow together until the not yet comes. 
And, and he doesn't quite answer the why that he does this, but when the, when the servants come back and say, why don't you get rid of the bad stuff? Jesus says, because by the time they get to this point, the roots of these plants are so intertwined that to pull up the tares, you would destroy the wheat as well. Now, I don't know what applicationally that quite means as to the exact why Jesus allows good and evil to coexist together, but it does tell us that he's not asleep at the wheel and there is intentionality to it. Here's the one other thing I would say is that the church is not immune to this, right? Now, again, there are books this thick written by people like John Calvin and Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, who would argue that um, the, 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 the field is actually the church. And then there's other really smart people who have written books this thick that would say, no, the field is the world because Jesus said it's the world. And I tend to think uh, that it's the latter, that Jesus is saying, yeah, in the world there will be good and evil growing side by side. But I also think uh, that it holds sway or it's true for the church as well. So if the world is that outer circle, of course it's going to include the church of Jesus Christ. Good and evil will grow together in the church. It is hideous. It is lamentable. It's hurt me. It's hurt many of you. But Jesus is saying this is a reality. One person described the kingdom of God like this. Sometimes we think, okay, when Jesus came, the fingers should have snapped and everything would have changed and, and, and all the evil would have gone and, and we should have been done. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen one of those videos of somebody who puts a stick of dynamite in a watermelon. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> yeah, they're great. YouTube that one. It's kind of fun, right? But oftentimes we think what should have happened is Jesus shows up and then boom, goes the dynamite, right? And the watermelon explodes and it's all over with. But Jesus is saying, no, it, it's more like, um, uh, what's the word? What am I looking for? Uh, it's more like a time-lapse photography. Time-lapse is one of the best inventions on the iPhone that I've seen, right? Many of you love taking time-lapse videos of your kids going off of ramps in the snow, right? And so Jesus is more talking about the kingdom being a time-lapse of that watermelon and dynamite, right? It blows. That's when Jesus shows up, right? You kind of see the watermelon bubble, but then there are phases to the kingdom coming where uh, the flesh eventually breaks the skin and, and begins to explode outward. But what Jesus is doing is he's calling for patience and perseverance for his people as the kingdom works its way out. Friends, I think in part what Jesus calls us to here as followers of Christ is for patience and endurance and to be on our knees and beg him to work in the dissonance. So if there is a dissonance, the second part of Jesus' comment by sharing this illustration is a dissonance that will not last. It's a dissonance that will not last. And here's the verses I want us to focus in on. It says, The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now in part, there's comfort in this statement. That's strange, Anthony. Why on earth would you find comfort there? I'm glad you asked. Up until this point, it just feels like really bad news. Jesus is simply asking us to tolerate evil or to coexist with evil. Great. Right. But here's what the end of this passage is saying, is that we later are relieved to find out that this situation doesn't last. That there is relief. Did you hear what it said? 
And so the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out the kingdom all causes of sin. So for those of us who weed and garden, right? You don't just rip the tops off the weeds. You get the root. Jesus is saying, in the not yet, I'd only get a, I not only get the tops of the weeds, I get the roots. I take it all. And there is justice for all of those who are lawbreakers. For a follower of Christ, this in part is our hope. For the sufferer, it's also comfort. Friends, there are some in our midst who have suffered such great horror and loss. We need the picture of Jesus in Revelation where he has a sword coming out of his mouth to bring his judgment. Otherwise, it's this impotent Savior. That's not what the Bible shows us at all. It's a Savior who demands justice. There's a reality that some do escape justice in this world. They do. But do you know what this picture tells us? No one escapes judgment in the next. There are some who escape justice in this world, but there are none that escape it in the next. For those who have suffered at the hands of abuse and oppression, there is comfort here. There is comfort that there is a fountainhead of justice. But there's also terror here. This is a frightening, frightening verse. Because it also talks about hell. A final judgment. Where there would be some cast into a fire. In 2003, 64% of Americans expect to go to heaven when they die. 1% expect to go to hell. I don't know where the other 30-some percent intend to go. But what it shows us is that hell's not very popular. And quite frankly, it shouldn't be. As Michael Horton would say, it's a monument to the horror of human rebellion. But friends, we can't ignore it. If you claim to be a Christian, you cannot ignore hell. Otherwise, you're ignoring Jesus. You know, out of all the writers of Scripture, Jesus teaches on hell more than everyone else combined. To ignore this doctrine would be to ignore the very voice of Jesus himself. Let me give you a working definition of hell. I know, right? What a warm, fuzzy topic. Hell is a place of eternal conscious, conscious torment for everyone who does not trust in Jesus Christ. It involves final separation from God's mercy and from God's people, unending experience of divine judgment, and just retribution for sin. Here's what's interesting. Hell is only mentioned as a word one time in the New Testament. James says it once. All the rest of it is imagery, gnashing of teeth, darkness, fire, right? And so I can't give you a whole lot of detail of exactly what it looks like, but here's what I can tell you. It means being separated from God and His mercy. And that's as horrific as it can get. And I also know that all the other imagery depicts that it's not good. Here's what J.I. Packer says about this. He says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture for respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him or without God forever worshiping themselves. A picture one person said is, is hell in this view is therefore a prison in which the doors are first locked from the inside by us and therefore are locked from the outside by God. 
I'm going to read you two long quotes as we come into the end here. And I, this is like death by quote, and I just apologize. This is like breaking all of my rules of preaching. Uh, but these guys say it far better than I do. And so can I just invite you? You can put pens down. You're not going to capture this whole quote. I can send it to you later if you want. Just listen to these as I read them. But Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, as he talks about us being by nature children of wrath, all of us deserving of the judgment that Jesus depicts here, he says this. Hang in there, it's long. Just close your eyes and listen. Ready? Divine wrath was something so deserving, so attendant, that we were its very children. We didn't just occasionally slip into the passions of our flesh. We lived in those passions. It was the air we breathed. What water is to fish, inordinate ugliness of desire was to us. We inhaled rejection of God and we exhaled self-destruction and well-deserved judgment. Beneath our smiles at the grocery store and cheerful greetings to the mailman, we were quietly enthroning self and eviscerating our souls of the beauty and dignity and worship for which we were made. Sin was not something we lapsed into. It defined our moment-by-moment existence at the level of deed, word, thought, and yes, even desire. We not only lived in sin, we enjoyed living in sin. We wanted to live in sin. It was our coddled treasure, our golem's ring, our settled delight. In short, we were dead, utterly helpless. That's what His mercy healed. All right, that's the end of that one. Dane Ortland is saying this isn't just an arbitrary God who is unloving, giving us something we didn't deserve. He's saying we deserved every bit of it because we wantonly desire life apart from Him if left to our own devices. And friends, without a proper understanding of judgment and hell, there's nothing amazing about grace. We might as well delete the song from our playlist. It's mediocre grace. The rest of Matthew is Jesus unpacking his answer to the rebellion of sin through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the second long quote by Tim Keller. So again, close your eyes and give a listen. To the person who would say a loving God would never have an eternal judgment be a part of the equation, he would respond to this. The question becomes, what did it cost your kind of God to love us and embrace us? What did he endure in order to receive us? Where did this God agonize, cry out, and where were his nails and thorns? The only answer is, I don't think that was necessary. But then ironically, in our effort to make God more loving, we have made him less loving. His love in the end needed to take no action. It was sentimentality, not love at all. The worship of a God like this will be at most impersonal, cognitive, and ethical. There will be no joyful self-abandonment, no humble boldness, no constant sense of wonder. We cannot sing to him, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Only through the cross could our separation from God be removed. And we will spend all eternity loving and praising God for what he has done. Friends, that's the mercy offered to us who deserve eternal judgment. That is amazing grace, the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's the danger at the end of a sermon of wheat and tares. You ready? Many of us would go, oh, that explains so-and-so in the church. They're a tear, right? Yes, I know some of you thought that today. I know you did. I may or may not have thought those things myself, right? 
But we need to be so careful of the logs in our eyes. What this passage reminds us of is we are all by nature children of wrath. This isn't meant for us to look around and go, tear, tear, wheat. It's meant to cause us to fall on our face before God and say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my heart, my all. All right, I'm going to go over time just a minute. I'm going to show you one picture. You see what this is? This is a foxhole radio, they call it. My dad was an electrical engineer. Um, this is what we did for fun, right? We put together these things, and they call it a foxhole radio because it didn't emit any power to alert the enemy of our whereabouts. My dad and I built one of these, and I read an article this week about how POWs during World War II would put these together secretly in their bunks. And when basically the war ended and the enemy fell, they heard days before they were uh, delivered from their captivity that the war had ended. And this gave them hope to persevere through that last week or so until they were freed. And so, for the follower of Christ, in a way, I believe the story of the wheat and the tares is our foxhole radio. Where we hear the the already and not yet of Christ's deliverance. Where He encourages us to persevere in hope that the evil we see is a dissonance that will not last. And the cross and the empty tomb prove that. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, I pray that you will just invade our hearts and our minds right now as we wrestle through some tough thoughts. Lord, invade mine. Father, it was only 5 o'clock last night where you hit me like a, like a hammer with some of these stirrings in my own heart. Lord, would you cause our hearts to see your grace and mercy poured out for us and respond in rejoicing and joy. We pray these things in your name. Amen.